of true delight whom I unseen adore unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more oh that I might love thee more you're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian the following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding eyes of Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's the reading of God's holy word. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, we pause now before your word and pray that uh, you would be present with us. We thank you that you have promised to accomplish that which you desire when your word is proclaimed. We pray that you would send your spirit now uh, to enable us to uh, know Jesus more, more and more. We pray that uh, within our hearts you would make him to be uh, more beautiful and more believable to us. He is the one that we need to hear from. So we pray that you would send your spirit now in Christ's name. Amen. I have to say this from the start. Uh, new meaning to Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> Got it? See what I did there? Sorry. Um, this, this passage is probably a familiar one to most of us here. Even if you are not a Christian here this morning, you are probably familiar with the term salt and light used to describe the people of God. And what Jesus is getting at here is this specific character and call to be salt and light in the world. He's talking about what mission, outreach, and evangelism look like. And so I would guess that immediately when I say those words, outreach, evangelism, mission, you probably have a lot of memories that come flooding to your mind of attempts, awkward attempts at that, at ministry that maybe you have been the recipient of or that you have been responsible for. Um, I remember many times in college going downtown to Sundance Square to see a movie at the theaters there. And there were a couple guys standing outside the theaters yelling uh, at everybody to repent and believe the gospel, and while all the while calling us sinners for going to the movies. Anybody seen that before? They still do that? Yeah, okay. Um, another one uh, that comes to mind for me uh, was at a high school job. I worked at Outback Steakhouse as a busser. So you'd come up on a table to clean it. Oftentimes the check was still there with uh, the tip as well. So sometimes you'd come up and you'd see what appeared to be a $20 bill 
sitting on the table. Go to pick up this $20 bill and open it up only to find out that it's not a $20 bill. It's a gospel track. Now, you can imagine how, uh, how much the servers enjoyed receiving something like that. And I, I do want to say, I, I mean, I, I have plenty of my own awkward stories as well, but I, I don't doubt for a second the motives of those guys standing outside the movie theater or those who were leaving that gospel track. Um, what I do want to say, though, is that whether you are a Christian here or not this morning, we all have these sort of uncomfortable, awkward stories of outreach evangelism or mission. And I think for some of us, on the one hand, you hear that and you recoil at the thought of it. You think, this is exactly what I hate about Christians. They're always trying to force their beliefs on other people, and they do so in ways that are unkind and unloving and insensitive. And I want to say a couple things to you, if that's you this morning. On one level, you are right. Christians historically have not always done ministry in a way that is respectful and loving, for sure. But I also want you to recognize that every single person in here has a message that they would like to share. Every person in here is advocating something. And it might not even be religious in nature. It could be that you are for mother, mothers against drunk driving, for instance. You might be an advocate of recycling and wanting to take care of the world that God made. And what I want you to notice is that these are all good things. And so the bottom line is that having a message that you want to share is not inherently bad. Everybody has one. It's unavoidable. The issue, though, is the content of that message, and then also, as we've talked about, the manner, means by which we would go about advocating whatever that cause is. So the perspective of Christianity is that the gospel of Jesus is the only hope for our world. And because that's the content of the message, it would be unloving, unkind, and wrong not to share it. So some of you might be feeling that recoil when you hear something like that. I want you to consider those two responses. Others of you, when I say the word evangelism, and I would guess this is probably the majority of us, feel immense guilt immediately. You feel like a total and utter failure when it comes to evangelism, and you think, man, I hope he doesn't say something that's really going to make me uncomfortable this morning. I'm not really interested in having guilt heaped upon me. Some of you feel as though you have really manipulated people in the past and aren't really sure what the way forward is in terms of outreach. Others of you, and I'd include myself here, are scared to death at the prospect of actually talking to somebody about Jesus. It's a very fearful thing. And others of you have probably grown up in churches or even been a part of families where guilt was regularly used as a motivator to this end. And so what I want to say to you this morning, if that's you, is that the Bible never uses manipulative guilt as a motive. Among the many motives that the Bible gives to us are, one, the overwhelming grace and goodness that we have been shown in Jesus. That is a motivator. Another motivator, and this is where we'll look this morning, is the glory of being a part of the biggest, most significant, most incredible story that has ever occurred or will ever occur. If you are in Jesus this morning, then your life 
is supercharged with significance. Because God has called you and made you a part of this community that has been called to bring this message of rescue and redemption to the entire world. That is your call this morning. And we, we grasp a hold of that. That becomes motivating. It's incredible that we'd be a part of that. And Jesus describes this mission with these two great images. So this question that we asked last week and that we'll ask again this week is, what does it mean to be a community of the king? Our answer this morning, being a kingdom community means living as salt and light in and for the world. Living as salt and light in and for the world. So two points this morning. The first is this. Jesus calls us and makes us to be the salt of the earth. You see this in verse 13. This is a familiar image to a lot of you. But what does salt do? Well, it does a couple things at least. The first thing that salt does is that it preserves. And this would have come to mind immediately for the original audience. You've got to think back to the first century here. No refrigeration, no freezers. We're in an arid environment here. So if you want to preserve any sort of meat, you had to salt it. I have no idea how the chemistry works behind that. I'm sure some of you do. But that's what it does. It preserves this food. So what Jesus is saying here is that this is how you are to live in the world. You are called to preserve that which is good and true and beautiful about this world that God has made. And there are a couple assumptions that are at work behind Jesus' words here. The first is that there is goodness, truth, and beauty in God's world that is actually worth preserving. And so to understand that, I want to back up a bit. To understand what Jesus is calling us to requires that we understand the whole of what God is doing in the world. The story of the Bible begins with God making this world good. He made it as this dwelling place where he would dwell with humanity and humanity would show forth his glory by their work in the world. We know that sin enters into this world and wreaks havoc. Everything is messed up. But here's what we need to understand about that sin. And here's how I'll say it. Sin is parasitic. Sin is parasitic. Here's what I mean. Sin takes something good, latches onto it, and twists it and misuses it. It takes something good and perverts it. Example, all of us, to some degree or another, have a desire for a relationship. That might be a romantic relationship. It could be just a relationship with another person. That is a good desire that you have been created with. However, we can take that desire and raise it up to an unhealthy level where we begin looking to a relationship to provide all of our meaning and significance. And we raise it up to a place where God alone should belong. It takes something good and it perverts it. It twists it. And the same is true for the world around us. That there is goodness in this world, though it is marred by sin. Jesus says there is still goodness in this world. And the call of the Christian is to identify and preserve what is good, true, and beautiful, wherever it's found. This could be in music, in literature, in engineering, in art, in film, in parenting. All of these things are examples and areas and spheres in which God's goodness could show forth. Great quote from Augustine as he gets at this. He says, all truth is God's truth. 
So we could say all goodness is God's goodness, wherever it's found. So there's goodness and truth and beauty in the world that we're called to preserve. But a second assumption that Jesus is making here is that God's world will spoil if Christians don't do this preserving work. God's world will spoil. Do you realize that God has called you to be agents in the world to preserve this goodness? He has called you to do that, not merely for yourself. This goes all the way back here to God's promise to Abraham where he said to him that you have been blessed in order to be a blessing. So from the very start, you as a recipient of God's grace immediately have this call to bless the world now. This is an assumption that's at work behind here. So if you're a Christian here this morning, then you are a part of God's way in which He will preserve the goodness, truth, and beauty in His world. So salt preserves. Secondly, though, salt also flavors. This is probably what we think of more immediately. I'm not a chef, so I went to the leading authority on what salt does in food. I googled it. And here's what this chef said. I don't know where it came from on the internet, but it's reliable, right? Here's what, uh, here's what the chef says about how salt brings out the flavor of foods. It says it's the basis for any great cooking. You can have a great dish, but if you've not seasoned it, it's just not there. Salt brings the best out of food. What does it mean for us then? It means that not only are we preserving the goodness, truth, and beauty of God's world, we are called to add to it, to cultivate it. And this is actually, going back to the big picture of the story of the Bible, this is what humanity was created for from the very beginning. To be made in the image of God is to be called to work in this world, to cultivate it and keep it and show forth the glory of God as you add to this goodness, truth, and beauty. That's what we are called to. So then an application question for us to to consider. How are we to be salt in the world? What might this look like? What shape might this take for us? One way, and this is what I'm going to suggest to us this morning, one way we can be salt of the earth is by doing good work. By doing good work. What this passage says to us is that your work matters. And I'm not talking about just the work that you'll do this week at VBS, which is hugely important and glorious. I'm talking about your work as a stay-at-home mom, talking about your work as a financial advisor, talking about your work as a lawyer. I'm talking about your work as a home builder, a teacher, a postal worker. Your work matters to God. And so your entire life becomes an opportunity to be the salt of the earth, to be involved in the, the, the preservation and even the adding to of this, this goodness, this truth and beauty in all of God's world. And here's what this means. This means that there's not a line that's drawn down the middle of your life where on one side you have sacred or religious stuff, and that would be kind of what's happening here on Sundays. And then on the other side, you have the other six days of the week and what we might call the secular stuff. That line is not there. Your entire life matters to God. You can be salt of the earth by doing good work. 
But as we said here at the beginning, um, I really want to address some of our fears this morning because I think that is a huge issue for us when we start talking about being salt and light. So I think Jesus recognizes that to be the case. And he identifies some dangers and ways in which these fears that we have can manifest themselves. So what is the, the danger that he speaks of? Well, if you look at verse 13, you see the danger, as Jesus puts it, is losing your saltiness. So what he says is if salt is no longer salty, it's worthless, right? I mean, it's denying its very purpose. That's its only purpose is to be salty, if it stops being salty, we could say in some way that it's denying its identity, right? I mean, this is what it is for. And Jesus is saying that the same could be said of us. That if we're no longer living in the world such that we're preserving it and flavoring it, then we are denying our identity as followers of Jesus. And it's a sober warning He gives here. He says it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. What might this look like for us? Well, I'm going to say that it looks like immersion in the world. It looks like immersion. I think this is one main error that we can have in approaching the world around us. So you go into the world. This is what this could look like. You go into the world and you immerse yourself in the world in every way possible. Out of a good motive. Salt has to be in something if it's going to season it, right? You go into this world, though, and what happens is that you begin to look more like the world than the world is looking like Jesus. You begin to be the one who is transformed and changed rather than vice versa. And I think the underlying fear here, or what we might say is the temptation that's at work, is that if you desire to go into the world and to be salty in this way, it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you social standing. It's going to cost you relevance in a world that is not interested in hearing that. There's a real cost at work here. It could be that you're going to lose the affirmation of somebody whose opinion you want badly. That is painful, and the temptation arises then to become immersed. There's a pastor in Greenville, South Carolina, who tells this story of his church who is in the downtown area of Greenville. And this church uh, is, continues to do very well. God is using it in great ways. And, and the mayor of Greenville actually sat down to have lunch with this pastor. And the mayor was just singing this church's praises. Loved the way that they were so committed to being involved in this place and seeking the good of it. And then at one point in this conversation, the mayor says, yeah, you know, there are these other churches who believe that Jesus is the only way to God. Assuming, of course, that this pastor was not one of those who believed that. He does believe that. And so immediately, this pastor is faced with this decision. Will I lose my saltiness or will I maintain it in the, midst of, in the face of a decision that's not going to be easy and risk losing my standing with this gatekeeper of the city? Where are you facing that temptation? Is it at your school? Is it at your job? This temptation is real, okay? And it's worth reflecting on where you're facing it now. So what's the solution? How do we maintain this saltiness? Here's what I'm going to suggest to us. That we maintain our saltiness as we participate in the life of God's community. 
as we participate in the life of the church. Why would I say that? I'd say that because in these uh, in verses 13 and 14, all of the yous are y'alls, okay? All of the yous here are plural. This is a call to the church as a whole. Jesus is calling us into the world to be salt and light as a community. Why would that matter? Why would that be important? It's important because inevitably you are shaped by the community in which you participate. It's unavoidable. It's how God created humanity, that you're going to be shaped by the people around you. And it is absolutely essential that that if we're going to actually move into the world as salt, you must have a community around you that nourishes you, that continues to take care of you and continues, this is most important, to point you back to Jesus when you are tempted to look elsewhere. When you're tempted to answer that question when you're sitting with the mayor in a way that you don't want to. So we've got to do this in a way that we are participating in the life of Jesus' community. And we've got to be vitally connected to one another in that way. Let me give just one suggestion as to how that might look. The ministry of small groups here at our church is intended to provide that sort of community for you. So I'd encourage you to to take the opportunity to become involved with other people in that way so that people know what's going on with you. People know the particular temptations of your own situation and are going to continue to point you back to Jesus when it becomes tempting to look elsewhere. So Jesus calls us then as the salt of the earth to be those that are preserving and flavoring the world that God made. And this is a glorious call. He says, secondly, verses 14 to 16, that we are to be light of the world. So what does light do? Very obvious here. Light first exposes darkness. It exposes darkness. And Jesus, once again, is making some assumptions here. This might be obvious to us, but I want to bring it out. The assumption is that there is real darkness in the world. There is real darkness in the world. The Bible recognizes that there is real evil, that there is real sin, that there is real brokenness. And the Bible doesn't shy away from talking about those things for a second. And for those of you who've read the Bible, you you know that it gets gritty in the way in which it talks about sin and brokenness in the world. There is real darkness. We are not called to deny that or act like it's not there. That's assumption. That's an assumption that's at work here. And in fact, what Jesus is calling us to, all the way contrary to this idea that we need to downplay it, he actually says we're called to expose it in some way. How do we do this? Well, not in a self-righteous sort of way. I think that's probably our concern when I say something like we're to, we're to expose darkness. We're not to do it in a condemning sort of way, but we are to do it in such a way that you can point to something in the world and say, this is not what God intended. God does not like it to be this way. This is not what he intends for his world. We are called to do that. The biblical example of that, and there are a lot of them, but one of them are the Old Testament prophets. Over and over again, they're talking to Israel and to surrounding nations about how they are neglecting the poor and they are manipulating the poor and using the poor and and showing injustice to the poor. Their role is to expose that darkness. And I think we as well are called to expose darkness in this way. What might that look like? It might be on a global level. 
Um, there are organizations you can be involved in. I know some of you are. International Justice Mission, for example, that works to end slavery that still exists, to end sex trafficking. Um, there, there are others of you who are involved with World Vision, for instance, that, that works to, to, uh, with, the, uh, with orphans around the world and provide them homes. But this is also something, and this is for all of us then, who can do this on a personal level. Suggestion of what this might look like. It might be you saying to a friend who is in the midst of some very difficult circumstances, just saying to that person, what you are enduring is wrong. And God weeps over what is happening and He has done something about it in His Son. That is exposing darkness in a way that is gracious and real. That's a way in which God calls us to be light in the world. But light also, secondly, pushes back darkness. Light reclaims the darkness. It redeems the darkness. It overcomes darkness. Jesus says in verse 13 that a city on a hill cannot be hidden. The light will overcome the darkness. It's clear and it's obvious. And this is a great image. If you think about being out in a rural area... As you're driving up to a city, it's obvious that you can see that city. Or if you're out away from the light pollution and you can see stars in the sky in a way that you can't see elsewhere. The light overcomes the darkness in that way. And that motif, this light and darkness motif, is actually something that that, that runs throughout Scripture. That Jesus' very redemptive work is described over and over again as being this light shining on the darkness. In John's gospel, this is how Jesus is described. He's the true light that comes into the world, and it continues throughout the Bible. And what Jesus has done is that he comes into the darkness in his incarnation. He enters into the sin, brokenness, and darkness, takes on human flesh, lives this life as a shining light in the midst of the darkness, and then enters into the ultimate darkness, which is death itself. And he experiences in that darkness the wrath of his own father. But it doesn't stop there. Because what Jesus does is overcome that darkness with the light of his resurrection. And that changes everything. The light redeems the darkness. And if you are here this morning and you have trusted Jesus, then you are called to continue that light redeeming darkness in his name. He has called you to be a part of this work in the world. We are called to continue to push back darkness. How would we do that? How how might this look for us? Well, I think first, it, it looks like going to dark places to speak words of life. It means going to dark places to speak words of life. This might be geographic. There was a professor named Harvey Kahn who taught at Westminster Seminary for years, and he was also a missionary to Korea. He literally went to the red light district in Korea to begin ministering to prostitutes there. He went to speak words of life and hope and forgiveness and transformation to these women who were being used and abused. That is going to a dark place. Some of you might be called by God to literally go geographically, to somewhere else. God might be calling you to that. It might be, though, and for most of us this will be the case, that it's going to take a different form. 
Going to a dark place for you to speak words of life might mean talking to that friend whose marriage is imploding and nobody wants to talk about it. You need to go there. It could be for you personally taking the step to make an appointment with a pastor or a counselor to deal with that addiction that is enslaving you. You need to go there. It could be talking with a friend who's struggling with same-sex attraction and feels utterly alone in the midst of that. You need to go there. It could be getting to know your neighbor and speaking into his or her deep despair and depression by speaking words of hope and life to them in the midst of it. And as you do that, as you speak these simple but life-changing, grace-filled words about who Jesus is and what He came to do, you are living as light in the world. You are pushing back darkness. And the way in which we do that is speaking the words of Jesus, the gospel itself, to people in these situations. That's the way pushing back darkness might look. A second way that we would push back darkness is what Jesus says in verse 16, by our good works. If you look back there, he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Here's how I think this works. I think what Jesus intends is that people would look on and see the way, one, we love and care for one another within this community. They would see the way we love and care for each other that way and the way that we care for the world around us, the way we take an interest in this school down the street, the way we care for people in our neighborhoods and the the desire to see people flourish as humans made in the image of God. They see that. And then the end result, Jesus says in verse 16, is that they actually enter into the praise of God the Father because they ask the question, why? Why would people do this? How is this possible? This is not the way the world works. And the answer to that question is the gospel. The answer is that Jesus came into the world for this very purpose, to seek and save the lost, to fix what's broken, to to shine light in the midst of darkness. So we're called to these good works. Let me give a couple qualifications. Again, this is not intended to be done in some self-righteous way, like, I need them to see my good works, right? Like, I want everybody to see how great I am. That's not what he's talking about. Nor is he saying, and this is probably where more of us are, nor is he saying that this is going to be done perfectly. The text doesn't say, let your perfection shine before others, right? And you know why that's important, aside from it being impossible? What's important is that when you put forward an image of perfection, that's not Christianity. Christianity is about Jesus coming for broken and helpless people. And so, actually, how we handle our sin and failure and conflict with one another becomes an opportunity for people to see Jesus. Your good works might look that way as well. He gives a warning for us as well, and it's that we would hide our light. What might this look like? It looks like isolation. It looks like that out of a fear, first of all, of other people and how they might respond, we want to withdraw. We want to avoid that sort of situation. We might even be fearful of what other Christians might say about the places that we go and the people that we talk to. Um, Many of you, I know, are Johnny Cash fans. He performed at Folsom Prison in 1968, but it was difficult to get to a point where the record company signed off on this concert. 
Here's, what, here's the conversation with the record company executive. He says to Johnny Cash, your fans are church folk, Johnny, Christians. They don't want to hear you singing to a bunch of murderers and rapists trying to cheer them up. So Johnny Cash pauses. He says, well, they're not Christians then. That's pretty harsh, but right, right? Uh, pushing back darkness is messy, and it can be scary. There are, there are things that are fearful about this, but this is exactly what Jesus has done. He has gone to these dark places. We also isolate ourselves out of a fear of corruption. We are scared to death of being influenced. We're scared to death of the way in which our children would be influenced. And I want you to know that I get this because I'm right there. But what we have in Jesus is our model and example of what it looks like to be involved with people in real ways and yet remaining true to who his genuine identity is. There are no easy answers to this. But this is what we are called to do. We have to know our own temptations and be wise about the places we would go. But what we can't do, and I'm talking to myself here, we can't use that as an excuse for inaction. Fear can't be what stops us from moving into the lives of people around us. These are real fears, and it's a real warning that Jesus gives. How do we prevent this? We prevent this by knowing that Jesus has come to you in your darkness. That if Jesus refused to come into the world to accomplish this work of redemption, then you and I are still lost, hopeless, and helpless. And when you understand yourself to be a recipient of that light, when that light has been shown onto your own darkness in a way that it has been redeemed, then you become one who is less fearful of the light because you know that that same Jesus whose light has shone upon you is the same Jesus that goes with you to those dark places. And that light will always overcome the darkness. It's an absolute certainty that Jesus wins in the end. And for that reason, we don't have to be fearful. I want to close with two objections that could come to mind here and then with a question. Some of you hear this and you think, again, I have failed miserably at this. And if that's you, you need to hear that this king that is calling you to this is a gracious and merciful king. You cannot out his grace. You're never too far gone. You've never failed too miserably to be outside the reach of his grace. You need to hear that this morning. Others of you hear this and think, That's fine for some people in here, but I'm not equipped to do this sort of thing. I'm not the one who can do this. I'm not up to this task. A few things to say. One, you need to hear that this is God's mission. That God is at work and He has taken you and made you a part of this work. And He has promised to equip you in it in the midst of all your weaknesses and failures. The other thing you need to see is that He loves to use broken people. The disciples were not this stellar bunch of ministry guys, okay? These are common, everyday sorts of people who have all sorts of brokenness and their own struggles and failures. And yet Jesus is going to reach the world through them? Yes. The last thing you need to see is that the image of salt itself helps us here. This is a simple, seemingly insignificant thing. And yet God uses this 
to bring about the redemption of the world, to spread this message. And he is saying to you, not make yourself to be salt, make yourself to be light. He is saying an indicative statement here. You are salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Jesus, by his grace, equips us to do this. He promises to. That's what he's saying here. So a question for you to think about. This is what we all need to answer. Where and how will you be salt and light in this place? Where and how will you be salt and light in this place? How might this transform the way in which you go about your job every day? How might this transform the way that you view your next door neighbors? How and where will you be salt and light in this world? Jesus invites you and calls us to be a part of the greatest mission that this world has ever known. He invites you to be a part of this community, this church that has been called to bring this message to the ends of the earth. And that includes your neighborhoods, it includes your schools, it includes the people around you. Let me pray for us and ask that God would actually do this in our midst. That He would bring about this sort of mission in our place. Our Father in heaven, we thank you uh, that you have given us such a glorious call at the same time we are overwhelmed by it. We thank you, though, that your grace is sufficient and that your strength is made perfect in our weakness. Thank you that it is your pattern to use people who recognize our own failures, our own weaknesses, our own struggles, all the ways that we, that we feel inept. We pray, Lord, that we would look beyond ourselves to you, the one who is at work in this world, and the one who promises to equip us to this end. And we pray that we would see fruit in this place, in our part of Fort Worth where you've called us to. We thank you that this is your promise. Thank you that you promised to give us joy in so doing. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, O oh, come with blissful rain, break radiant through the shades of night, and chase my fears away, won't you chase my fears away?